Welcome, everybody, to the 28th episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas, and we discuss particular keywords. The keyword combo for today is essential workers, or essential work. And as guest today, we have Ashok Kumar. Alan, would you please introduce Ashok for us? Indeed, I would. Uh, Ashok, though his background is in geography, works at the Department of Management at Birkbeck, the University of London. Uh, he's sat on the editorial board of Environment and Planning D, uh, Society in Space uh, City, uh, as did Andreas Chatsidaki, who's uh, uh, previously on this podcast. Uh, Ashok's also sat on the board of Historical Materialism, and he has a new book which is going to be published um, uh, any day now, it's called Monopsony Capitalism, Power and Production in the Twilight of the Sweatshop Age, which is going to be published by Cambridge University Press. So hello, Ashok. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Ashok, the term that we have uh, identified today is essential workers, but that's probably a new term. Um, I'm not really familiar with it being used before this crisis. Uh, do you think that's the case? Well, I mean, I think that there was a, you know, definitely uh, questions around key workers uh, that was quite prominent in this sort of Anglo-American world. Um, but the idea of essential workers uh, and the centrality of essential workers, I think, is something that's really emerged out of the global pandemic. I personally wouldn't necessarily disarticulate uh, the notion of essential worker from questions of around and really how it complicates questions around skill. Because, um, you know, the idea of skill is under the normal conditions, let's say the pre-COVID uh, conditions of capitalism, is deeply hegemonic, deeply ideological. But when we see what happens uh, after uh, COVID, the pandemic, is that what you know quickly becomes visible is that and I mean, a lot of commentators have talked about this, is that that society really uh, could not be run uh, without some of the lowest paid workers in society, and that society is able to run just fine without the kind of paper pushers and the middle managers and the executives and the CEOs and so on and so forth. And so uh, what you find is actually that the, um, that the most essential workers are those that make the least, and the least essential workers are those that make the most. So it sort of inverts the skill, unskilled question that we see, that has really become, that is quite hegemonic in society. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to kind of see this question in a kind of more structural way. You know, I, I think listeners would know that we live in a mode of production known as capitalism. Um, and there have been plagues and pandemics and so on and so forth in previous modes of production. And if you look at, for example, the Black Death in England in, 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 the, in the 14th century, in, in, in 1348, um, it occurs under a sort of feudal mode of production. And because, you know, people weren't dispossessed from their means of subsistence, so most of society were peasants um, who lived on the land and grew their food on the land. And so they, they lived, you know, very close to their means of subsistence. And so even if you have a pandemic or a, uh, a plague, or it doesn't, people aren't starving to death, right? Or necessarily starving to death as a consequence of it, even though the death rates were very high. 
And so if you look at sort of arguments by political Marxists like Robert Brenner or Ian Wood, they say that basically capitalism really begins in England because of the feudal property-tenant relations, which means that you, what, what ends up happening between basically 1500s to 1700s is you have the most efficient agricultural production in the world producing enormous surpluses. And these enormous surpluses are a necessary precondition to wage labor. And those surpluses come in, in the form of food. You have to have essential, you have to have large surpluses in, in food in order for, in order to be able to produce wage labor or produ produce labor power. And so um, right now we live under capitalism where people subsist by selling their labor power through wage labor. And so the most essential work in this system goes back to that original, original accumulation, that original form. And it comes in the form of food. So what we saw is that, that, that you know, basically people who work in farms, farm workers, logistics, transportation, warehousing, retail, these places that were basically seen as non-essential, once you see this kind of crisis in the system, that we go back to the most base element, which is the production, distribution, transportation, and, and sale of, of food. And so those workers become really essential. We knew that healthcare workers were already essential. But what this reveals is that those workers are the most essential and that at least since 2008, since the crisis, there's been this common mantra that's become more and more generalized, say, in the pages of the FT or, um, you know, in, in popular press that, you know, Marx was right. And, you know, I think what we see with COVID is that that, that, that claim, that moniker, comes to the sharpest relief. And so it's not that this is particular to one place and this speaks to the more universal universality of, of, of capitalism, that those who run society, so the so-called wealth creators that is really popular in America and other places, um, have spent most of their time sort of locked away in gated communities and sort of summer homes. And the fact that they are not uh, involved in society has made, like I said, very little difference. But I'll just take it a step further. That in fact, it's, it be, it's become really clear that they're in action in society and they're getting delivered, you know, goods and services and so on, that, that, that their relationship to society is really a parasitic one. Um, they're not just not essential, they're a burden. Um, so like you, you just look at quite recently, the in, I would say in the last week, uh, two different statements by Boris Johnson, which would have been fairly acceptable in society only, you know, six months ago. So last week he said that, you know, he made the comment that we should clap for carers, but also uh, wealth creators, capitalists, and financiers. And so that statement, you know, you know, every Thursday people are clapping, and this time he added that in there. It was kind of mercil mercilessly mocked by people across the political spectrum um, and because it was seen as completely ridiculous, whereas that wouldn't have been seen as ridiculous a year ago. Um, and certainly not a year and a half, uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago when the idea of finance was really, again, very hegemonic. It's also indicative that in the same speech, he, he reminded people that he was, quote, not a communist. Um, and so this is where you see the, the need for a, the kind of state intervention and the, the property classes come out, whereas it's totally incongruent with where people are at. And then earlier today, you saw that, like, um, there was a kind of a, an eruption, uh, even in the mainstream press. And uh, when Boris uh, Johnson blamed care homes uh, for uh, the, the, the spread of COVID, and people really pushed back because there was a recognition that 
that people are really trying their best, especially in these sectors, and that the government won't have an easy time simply just blaming these essential workers or these essential people can people the government has in a coordinated way blamed the public, and a lot of that is has actually worked. But there's a difference between blaming the public and blaming essential workers, and you see that attempt by Boris, and that you see a massive pushback uh, against that. And so you see this kind of um, move of what is defined as essential from non-essential, uh, from healthcare, food, transport workers, um, and this is not um, this is again a universal tendency. It's not something specific necessarily to Britain or the U.S. Uh, and despite the diversity of societies across the world, it shows that there's a kind of unitary logic and laws of motion that apply across the world. Uh, and so when COVID happened, similar rationale reactions happen across the world. Um, and that's set simply that with, without workers, capitalism has nothing and, and, and can't function. I think that's the context to think about essential and non-essential workers. I think I think it's also a, really a question of 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 a power, but I, I can I can respond. I can maybe talk about that a little bit in a bit. I'm thinking um, to add to those controversial quotes. You might remember that the British Home Secretary, Priti Patel, uh, gave a speech in February where she identified unskilled workers as those earning less than twenty five thousand pounds, which includes a huge amount of professions. Uh, but certainly, a lot of the people who are now been designated as essential workers had only weeks previously been also described as unskilled workers by Priti Patel under circumstances where she's making clear that that people uh, that these people wouldn't be allowed into the country in future. No, precisely. I mean, there's the context of her saying that was precisely as a way to raise the barrier to entry for migrants. And so it's, uh, it's so, I mean, and you pointed out, but it's so clear that it's not I think when we think about essential workers also, it's not simply the case that the governments of these countries have started to say that, has started to categorize people as essential workers because they've come, you know, sort of maybe come to that position, like they've realized that these are essential workers. I think at some level, it's sort of, it has a, its own kind of discursive or ideological underpinnings. So you you publicly recognize the, recognize the the essential ro- role of certain workers that you basically wanted to deport months earlier. You sort of publicly celebrate it, uh, and then that op- operates as a kind of substitute uh, to both you know providing them more money and resources, more support, more PPE, and it creates the conditions or attempts to create the conditions in which the assertion of one's workplace bargaining power, which obviously have increased under the conditions of COVID can actually be portrayed as maybe selfish or a betrayal of someone's duty to the nation, a nation that, again, didn't even see them as worthy of being here just a few months ago. So I think there's a dual effect of that. Uh, that's why I think it's kind of the question of more than what category they might fall under. I mean, in this country, there's some you know, BA systems workers were essential, um, were categorized as essential. So it's obviously, it's not like a politically free decision, you know, like as a reason why they've been decided, they've been chosen as essential and other workers who might be more essential haven't been. But I think, again, it's a question of, 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 of power, right? So it's like, by categorizing workers as essential workers, the question is, does it increase their bargaining power? And I think that, you know, under normal conditions, workers have really two primary ways to increase their structural bargaining power. Of course, workers can always 
you know, organize themselves and go on strike and make other demands. But those are more like associative, associative uh, power. Um, I'm thinking of work by like people like Eric Owen Wright and others. But there's really two primary modes of, of structural power that workers have. That's one is positional power. And the second is marketplace bargaining power. So positional power is where it's based on where they're located in the economy. So let's say, let's take some of the most obvious example. And there's like a person that works as a container crane operator, you know, moving large containers from one place to another. And there's two of them, let's say. And one works uh, as a container crane operator at a warehouse. So they're just, you know, a warehouse in the middle of nowhere, moving, you know, these large containers from one place to another into the warehouse. And then you have another container crane operator working at a port or a dock. Um, and because the disruptive potential of the worker working at the dock is greater, that means that their positional power is greater, which means they have greater bargaining power, right? The second is marketplace bargaining power, which is more related to, you know, the more res- the greater your reserve army of labor, the greater the pressure that's put on the existing worker, especially at the lower end, which means they, they're more easily replaceable. So if you take these two questions under the conditions of COVID, uh, it's clear that economic downturn leads to like, you know, less marketplace bargaining power. So you have greater unemployment, a worker at Tesco might have less bargaining power because there's a constant pressure of more workers being able to take their place very easily, right? But actually, if you look at positional power, it's something that might be greater. Because these workers aren't just discursively or categorically or legally described as essential workers, because these workers are actually essential to the ongoing durability of our current system, you know, that's why it can be wielded in, in ways to strategically choke uh, the economy. If you have, let's say, Tesco workers under normal conditions uh, going on strike, they wouldn't be as easily replaceable. But right now, there's a mechanism, and you see this at Amazon in a number of places, and you see this actually strikes, even in recognized workers, like you know, thousands of Italian auto workers and metal workers went on strike in March and April, you saw food warehouses in Australia go on strike, and California workers it farms the you know farmed pistachio and other goods went on strike. You know, just I think maybe ten days ago, and all the time, Las Vegas casino unions went on to file suits, and in Canada you had warehouses going on strike, and Amazon in G- Germany, everywhere you have this, and often the the some language of essential workers is wielded in a kind of counter hegemonic way, but also. Even today, Sierra Leone, doctors in Sierra Leone threatened to go on strike and they were talking about their essential role they played in the ongoing durability and, and sustainability of the economy. So it's not only being used as a propaganda tool to, to discipline people into not disrupting, it's now being wielded in, in certain places as a way to upend the existing social order, you could say, and demand greater bargaining from the point of production. Now, I suppose an extra variable that complicates all of this is the idea of uh, migrant workers, uh, because obviously we live in an age, uh, in Britain, for example, there's Brexit, which is going to change the the, the visa status uh, of a huge amount of people who fall into this category, as well as just a general upsurge of populist, uh, reactionary, uh, anti-immigrant politics in, in many countries around the world. And it seems this category of essential workers arrives as a kind of a strange split in this because it, it links together the working class who, who are uh, born in the country with the migrant workers into this uh, category. 
in a way which it, it perhaps changes the whole uh, uh, direction of, of debate, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I think at one level it does, but I think it, at another level, and this is the second part about marketplace bargaining power, we're dealing with the effects of COVID and we're not even near the end of it on the economy. On an economy, by the way, that, you know, in second quarter had, you know, I think, or the the third quarter had, you know, 0.2%. Um, it's, you know, in terms of the real economy, in terms of um, manufacturing was falling. The only places the economy was strong is in sort of more speculative elements like construction and others. And so uh, because you have a very, you know, the economy in Britain is basically like Swiss cheese. It's full of holes. And so is the labor market. I mean, in 2019, you had real-term wages fall to 2008 levels. So I think that the economy here now is going to, potentially be either a sustained sort of Japan-style uh, stagnant economy or it might just fall, but I don't see it rising anytime soon. And what that means is you have, you know, increased unemployment potentially, that coupled with a decade of austerity, which means that, you know, you don't have a larger kind of social wage. I think with the anti-immigration sentiment, if it goes through, which it's going, it seems like it's going through regardless of what's happening with the essential workers. Uh, if it does go, go through as was planned prior to this, I think in order to make up for this fall in employment uh, levels, you might see uh, attempts by the state to increase workfare policies. So you have to work in order to have access to welfare provisions, uh, even greater forms of austerity or reduction in benefits or even potentially lowering pension ages or uh, or uh, increasing pension age, ages rather um, and then also like you know, increasing the quali- how someone can qualify for disability and so all of these might be a mechanism uh, to uh, absorb the labor market issues that will come with stringent immigration controls Ashok there's also been an absurdity about all of this one that does a lot to reveal the power and politics that go into forcing a label such as an essential worker to a person in the sense that then this person can be forced into risky or in this case even life-threatening work in certain contexts. Then at the same time, when one looks at the situation, some of these jobs labeled essential in different countries and contexts felt a rather absurd. I'm thinking, I think I saw marijuana growers and sellers or movie theater operators, movie theater service providers being labeled essential in different parts of the states, for example. So I feel there is a certain sinister arbitrariness to it all. Yeah, that's precisely right. I think it's like, it's not that the category of essential worker uh, was a way to recognize the importance of certain workers that historically weren't recognized. I mean, most of the time, and I'm thinking particularly in the U.S., I mean, you look at states in the U.S. that were um, the most conservative states in the U.S. I think basically if we look at the question around uh, lockdown or no lockdown, right, and you you draw out the states that are the most kind of politically to the right, um, and I'm talking about states in the U.S., but also states across the world, versus those that were more to the left, if it's a debate between labor and capital, if we can reduce it to that, the pro-labor position would be to have as few essential workers 
and have the greatest provision for lockdown. Whereas if you go to the, the U.S., there were states in the South that were more kind of reactionary and Republican. You know, any large lobby, any industry that had a lot of control in the state, their workers were considered essential and they were kind of forced or coerced back to work. So you're actually completely right. It's, 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 it's not that it was always this more like discursive recognition of someone, of, of people's essential, the necessity of certain kinds of work in society or workers in society. If anything, it was a way to push people to go to without protection and without uh, provisions to continue to be workers. I, well, something that comes to mind is BA systems. I said this earlier is in which universe is that an essential job? I mean, I obviously building munitions and we're not at war. Um, it, the only reason would be that it's this kind of, you can call it crony capitalism, you can call it capitalism, but it's a way to ensure the ongoing and uninterrupted profit of a very essential um, uh, industry in the country and a very powerful industry in the country. One aspect which is implied by this concept of essential worker um, is that perhaps it defetishizes labor um, or it, it forces people to recognize, especially during the early phases of the lockdown, uh, how dependent we are upon the social process of production itself. And a key part of capitalist ideology is that that is supposed to be concealed. Um, so that's quite an interesting phenomenon in its own right, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I can add to that, to be honest. Um... Well, the matter becomes all the more focused, I think, when it becomes clear how these really are matters of life and death, for instance, that, uh, that on, on one level, our ability to just uh, continue to function is dependent on the utility workers. Um, our ability to survive is going to be dependent on uh, the hospital workers. But then also there's been an awareness of how the working conditions... Um, are absolutely to the heart of how the coronavirus circulates. So, for example, at the right now, as we're recording, I live in Leicester, which is continued to be in lockdown while the rest of UK continues or, or, or is having these easy enough restrictions. But we're going deeper into lockdown. And it seems possibly the reason for that is that there's about 1,000 workshops in the city where there are exploited workers uh, and in those workshops, there aren't proper safety procedures put in motion that people have been forced to turn up to work, uh, even though they have coronavirus. So in that sense, we see quite explicitly how how the abuse of some workers uh, puts all of us uh, at risk. And this is quite, well, it should always be essential. Uh, it's nonetheless quite revelatory to see it so explicit. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, the, the cases that you're talking about, is now really blown up in a lot of social media, but also in terms of um, uh, in mainstream media. And I'm speaking specifically of the cases that are, have occurred in Leicester and the garment district, you could say, of Leicester, uh, is um, the company, the kind of urban wear clothing company, Boohoo, which owns a number of brands. But it's sort of, um, I speak to this a little bit in my book, but the reason why I think it's become really big now and what it reveals specifically under these conditions, even though stories of this, of these sweatshop conditions and these very small manufacturers, low value, vertically disintegrated, 
uh, low capital intensive, labor intensive suppliers, which kind of very reminiscent. I mean, the conditions are probably exactly the same, even the labor, in, even in the capital investment in terms of what they actually use, sewing machines, almost identically the same to what it was 100 years ago. What you had was this company, Boohoo, that's producing in uh, Leicester. And as uh, COVID happens, as, it, as it's going down, companies that are producing in Bangladesh, they might even be having greater revenue for the products they're producing in, say, Bangladesh and other developing countries, which are sort of labor-intensive and garment with large garment sectors. But because one of the key variables in these kind of labor-intensive producers, specifically garments and footwear, is that of uh, ephemeral fashion trends. So fashion trends are constantly changing. So if you have, a, you know, with, in the case of Boohoo, for example, they are kind of affordable clothes for primarily young women and teenage girls, but also men. And you, you can get like, you know, a bag or a dress for under five pounds. But they are, because, you know, there's two variables. Why, since the form of the garment, since the emergence of really industrial production in the garment sector, they've remained vertically disintegrated. That means that the person that owns the brand the, the company that owns, owns the brand doesn't really own the production process. So an example of that is if you go to a shop and buy a pair of Nikes, they will own really nothing of the production process from logistics to warehousing to the production to the cotton fields to even the retail. They'll own the brand, right? And people are aware of this. Well, it's similar to, to Boohoo, right? They, and, but the difference is the second part is, you know, the first part is ephemeral fashion trends. So it's constantly changing. So the ability to offshore it to different suppliers means that you lower your liability. The second part is seasonality. So you can never really predict seasons very quickly or how they'll change or, you know, what people's needs are for a particular season or whether it'll be extended or minimized. And so when COVID occurs, normal suppliers are, are in Bangladesh. They're held up. They've already produced those goods. And they also have large fixed capital expenses because they're, you know, they're on high streets and so on. Boohoo, along with other suppliers, along uh, with other um, with other online sellers, is an advantage there. But the second advantage that they had was that they were able to quickly turn around and produce loungewear and houseware and athletic wear in a way in the, in the way that other supply other brands were producing kind of you know summer wear or party wear and so on. So these things were meant that you know you had massive increases and surpluses uh, since kind of when it started. But in the last two days, what you also see is there's a combined thing that's happened really with at this point in, in, the, in the kind of pandemic is that both you have people operating in similar ways in that they will start buying certain goods or um, like these kinds of clothes. But then quickly when this news came out, um, you know, people stopped buying them. And, you know, their market capitalization was 5.2 billion in mid-March, and now basically in two days, they've wiped away 1.5 billion in market cap. So I think it's sort of, it speaks to the fickle nature of fast fashion, but also to the kind of profit models of these brands. But yeah, I think that that, in, in lots of ways, because of, the, there, it can't, it's not a coincidence that both, that COVID both led to the profit, the large profits of companies like Boohoo, but also revealed their strategy you know you saw that these outsourced producers were basically paying 350 when you know minimum wage for over 21 25 is 825 821 
uh, you also saw that they remained basically open throughout the lockdown, mo- lots of them, you know, specifically the ones that were uh, that produced for these companies like like Boohoo. And that there was no, there's not only no social distancing, that they had actually, we were in cramped conditions. There was no protections. And I don't know for certain, of course, but I would say that there is, you, you can't be uh, distanced or they can't be disarticulated from the fact that Leicester has such an exceptionally high rate of COVID. Ashok, when I was searching for your book uh, online, I noticed that Michael Burawai said of your book that you are challenging the fatalism accompanying neoliberalism in a nice way. So uh, could I ask you, how is it exactly that you do this? Because unfortunately, I'm a very pessimistic person. So can you tell me how you make this happen? Well, I think that this, um, I mean, I don't know if I'm either, I'm, I'm neither optimistic uh, in general um, in my political ideology or my political theories, nor am I pessimistic. I just sort of, I think that the analysis of labor, and we were you know, talking about this a little bit earlier, that basically when you're thinking about labor and its power, um, and this can be applied to society more generally, it's a combination of structural power, which is material conditions or what Marx would call objective material conditions, and subjective agency of workers. So it's a combination of you know, of both things. And neoclassical economics, they'll say workers get what they deserve, right? And often with other forms of analysis, more radical ideas of bargaining power, there's this idea that workers can demand a lot and and it doesn't matter what the conditions are. But basically you need the combined force of material conditions and, you know, the changing composition of capital and and workers' actions. You know, workers get what they demand, with what's available is basically the idea behind this. And if you analyze the garment sector, and I think the garment sector is garment sector is the kind of archetype. It's the kind of personification of the ongoing, it's a kind of illustration of the ongoing durability of the sweatshop. It's that you've basically the condition, you have to analyze the structure of the, of the garment sector. So the garment sector, like I was saying a bit earlier, is that because of the commodities that's being produced or because of the specific product that's being produced, it, that product then shapes the production process. So if you go 130, 140 years ago, you would have hundreds of auto factories producing their own automobiles. And, and over time, what happened is they ended up consolidating. As they consolidated, there was an investment in la- more and more investment in labor savings th- technology as you're creating more surpluses at the point of production. And as that happens, you have more consolidation and more investment and you raise the barriers to entry for new suppliers to come into the market. So what they are able to do, these firms that are able to become more and more or increase their degree of monopoly power, is they're able to lock in the market, right? The garment sector, it was never, they were never able to do that. And the reason for that is because across the world or the, you know, the advanced capitalist world uh, 120, 130 years ago, you had these sort of growing brands or jobbers in America is what they called them who or retailers who purchased from any number of suppliers, thousands of suppliers. And they were able to do that because you had low barriers to entry. And the reason you had low barriers to entry is because there were never enough surpluses uh, accumulated at the point of production in order for those suppliers to escape the orbit of this, of this dynamic, right? So what, these are what you call buyer-driven supply chains. 
Now that that legacy, even though there were some um, demands that were won in America and also in London and in other other centers of production, that structure remained the same. So once you get into the era of globalization, it starts. You know, basically you have these low value suppliers pop, propping, popping up everywhere, um, and it makes sense, right? Like as you have free trade happening around the world, um, you have you know, trade opens up in different countries. And as they open up, let's say you're an emerging uh, capitalist in Cambodia or India or somewhere. And you're saying, you know, I want to open up a factory that's export oriented. And um, you could open up a uh, aeronautics plant, airplanes, and it might cost you a billion pounds, right? Uh, you can open up a, a auto factory, it might cost you a hundred million pounds. But if you open up a garment factory, it would basically, I'm talking about 20 years ago, it would cost you about a million pounds. And in that place, you could have 3,000 workers who are, you know, bending, crouched over sewing machines. And it's very cheap, you know. You can make it happen. But the value, the amount of value you're, you're accumulating at the point of production is quite low. And that's what you see in Leicester as well. You see these low-value emerging kind of bourgeoisie who aren't at the upper, upper levels at all, who are able to open up small shops and, and have a number of workers working there. But basically what I... Uh, draw out in the book is that there's a fundamental logic that shapes the value chain and it's based on the kind of laws of competition. It's that as you make trade more free, um, you sort of open up boundaries, open up borders uh, to trade, to capital, what happens is that the buyers, and let's say the buyers primarily are based in the global north, I'm thinking, let's say, Nike and H&M as H&M examples of this. The buyers are able to increase their profits because the monopsony, monopsony is the name of the book, but monopsony is basically when you have many sellers and few buyers. So there's, there's an unequal or asymmetrical relationship in which the buyers have more power over the supply chain. As you have more uh, borders crumbling to capital, more and more potential capitalists can enter the field. And because the, the, the barrier to entry is so low, over time, more and more come in as, as, as borders crumble. So this, all of the borders to, to garment capital around the world, because there's this thing called the multi-fiber agreement, ended basically in 2005. As that happened, you had enormous, you had the increase in the monopsony power because you have thousands of, and tens of thousands of potential suppliers and not that many buyers, so there's an unequal relationship. As that's happening, you have this increase in the profits for these companies. You have kind of bumper years between 2006 and 2008. Over time, you have downward pressure being placed on these suppliers by the buyers. And that downward pressure leads to, uh, you know, downward pressure in the form of, let's say I'm produ- let's produce this shoe or this shirt, your de- the demands by those big brands is that they be produced for faster and for less money. And as that demand happens, fewer and fewer suppliers. So the increase in monopsony power can't be disarticulated from the falling sub- source, pli- source price. Fewer and fewer suppliers are able to compete. As fewer and fewer suppliers are able to compete, they start consolidating. Some, goes out of, some go out of business, you know, mid-size or larger ones take over that market share, and they start growing and growing. And as that happens, there are increased surpluses for the first time at the point of production. As those increased surpluses occur at the point of production, they start investing in labor-saving technology, more efficient production processes, and they become 
they almost become locked in with their buyers because there's nobody that can produce a shirt or a shoe at the price demands of these, of these larger suppliers. So as that happens, the ability for workers, because historically workers in these sectors, if they made their demands at the point of production, the brands would simply cut and run because the primary variable in which they would, uh, they, they would accumulate profits was off of, of, off of labor. And so if the cost of labor went up nominally more, the supplier would go out of business because the brands would cut and run. But now they, they just can't do that, really. And also, these suppliers are now more value-laden so workers can make those kinds of demands at the point of production. And also, as you invest in more labor-saving technology, your disruptive potential, because you can't replace those facilities as easily. Let's say you have an aeronautics plant. It's enormous machinery there. They can't, if the workers go on strike there, they simply can't just find another place to invest that kind of money and start producing again. So that disruptive potential, um, that's what I was talking about earlier with positional power, uh, increases. So that structural power means that um, workers can, you know, just have greater um, power at the point of production. And in the book, I kind of go through a number of different actions at the point of production. I, I look at South India, at a denim producer, uh, in, in, in South China, in, at a shoe producer, a little bit in Vietnam, and then in Honduras uh, in the production of, of undergarments um, by a large undergarments brand. And in, in, in so doing, you sort of, you can see that this kind of, this process is kind of crystallizing. And there's a, there's a kind of logic to supply chains that, that I argue that is, is, is a kind of universal logic that, would, that applies um, everywhere. And it's kind of taken from labor market theories as well. But um, yeah. Ashok, when I was still doing my studies in a business school in the early 2000s, Nike was always talked about with, with veneration. Like the idea that a company can be this global player by only reducing itself into this grand marketing function that was seen as both brilliant and exciting in what you can imagine a typical business school approach to these matters. So my question to you really is, how did we get to this point ideologically where it is seen as commendable for a company to reduce itself to this sort of basic function, but sort of dominate the whole supply chain with this. And even though we have, re in recent years, witnessed all these PR disasters regarding sweatshops and terrible labor, labor conditions, it would seem that there's still not too much of a pushback really going on. So is there, in your opinion, still today, any serious contestation of the Nike, if you will, business model, especially when one bears in mind that the idea of the ethical consumer, especially when it has to do with fashion, seems to be a bit of a myth as well. Whether it's a myth or not, I mean, I don't really write about ethical consumption as much, but I, you can see that when a company does horrific things, and just take the example of Boohoo, for example, it just doesn't, be, it's just not cool anymore. I mean, this is the fickle nature of brands. They go up like a rocket and they can come down like a stick. If you look at a, uh, a company that's cool one day, they can be very uncool the next. And, and that's why, you know, basically since, you know, the global justice movement in the late, 90, late 90s, people understood that. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the very, you know, of no logo, uh, Naomi Klein's, but that strategy was deployed, you know, across particularly America, but in a lot of different co contexts 
to, to quite effectively, but not effectively enough, right? And there's no real instance in which consumers, through the dint of their own consumption practices, were able to fundamentally alter the relationships of power in, in any instance. What you do see is that consumers were able to apply secondary pressure. So we think of, like, say, apartheid in South Africa, where you had the ANC and others take militant action on the street, you know, within the country, and then there was secondary pressure. Uh, you see that now, of course, in Palestine, but also if you look at the cases in the U.S. with the great boycott, uh, where you had the United Farm Workers ask for, you know, demand a great, great boycott because they were striking and making labor demands at the point of production. And that was very effective. You know, I have relatives and friends and parents' friends who still don't eat grapes. Um, and I'm like, you know, the grape boycott is not still going on. It hasn't been going on for about 30 years. But they're like, never. You know, I think that there is... And with, with garments, the effective tool that, you know, by the 19... Late 40s in the U.S., and there was a Life magazine cover that goes into this great detail, detail in 1948... Garment workers were making as much as auto workers in the U.S. And the reason why that is, is because they, the union there, the International Lady Garments Workers Union, was organizing workers at the point of production and organizing people at the point of consumption at retail and forcing those buyers and those, those producers and those brands to, into a contract. So they were, there's a three-part contract there. It kept the system the same, but it was able to win concessions basically for 30 years until the 1960s when they started off, offshoring. And, you know, they were outrunning the ILGW. So the, the idea that Nike is a new phenomenon, I just wouldn't necessarily... It's a new phenomenon in the sense that it's a global phenomenon. But basically, you always had outsourced production since the earliest days of clothing production. And it never really stopped. It just grew in size. Um, specifically on the Nike question, I mean, there's an entire chapter I devote to that question in the book. Specifically, the 2014 strike at a... Uh, Hu Yen factory in Guangzhou, in uh, the Pearl River Delta region of, of China. And it was the largest private sector strike in the history of China. And they, um, you know, 50,000 workers went on strike for two weeks uh, around social insurance. And so that sort of indicates the, the questions of how the age of industrial working class in China is changing quite dram dramatically. People are much older. But also that they were acutely aware that the central role that Hu Yen and Po Yuan, their, their parent company, which is a Taiwanese company, held within global supply chains. You know, 30 years ago, they were like a company like anyone else. But by the time you get to 2012, 2013, 2014, they are the largest producer of casual shoes and sports shoes in the world. They're the exclusive producer for Adidas and Nike. And this is because of the consolidation process that I was describing earlier. And that it is the case that UUN simply wouldn't exist without, some, without companies like Nike or Adidas. But it's also the case that Nike also found these suppliers essential. And so if the supplier is essential, the workers also can play an essential role and exert their power because they're not as re replaceable. And what you saw there is they didn't necessarily win their demands. I mean, certainly they wouldn't admit that they won their demands, but... Uh, they won massive concessions, you know, to the tune of 30 plus million pounds. And they caused the company at least 27, 28 million pounds worth of uh, damages from their supply, from their strike. And also they were, a key, key part here is that Nike and Adidas could not find any alternative producers. In the short term, they were producing in other places, but they all came back to Hu Yen. Uh, and then you saw strikes similarly happen in Shenzhen within, within a number of weeks. 
are on the same demand at the same supplier company. And then at another subsidiary, Po Yuan in Vietnam, uh, they made it was the largest private sector strike at a Hu Yen facility outside of Ho Chi Minh. And they were able to win all of their demands as well against the state uh, around, around the same demands, actually, around social care. Uh, so it's not, I, I'm not one of those Marxists that you saw really in the 1970s, which would, everything was like, you know, get ready, revolutions around the corner. I'm certainly not saying that. I'm saying that there's an um, underlying logic to capitalism. It moves in a particular direction. And that direction is, you know, in terms of, that's not a particularly radical position. I mean, that's what neoclassical economists and Keynesians and post-Keynesians and um, Marxists all argue this in some, some way or another. But that that centralization is, is also occurring now uh, because of the end of really any discernible borders to, to capital in, in, in industrial production. So it's a logical outgrowth of this, but that isn't, and it's a complicated story as well. It's not the case that as you have consolidation, it automatically means workers have greater demand to the point of production. It means that as you have consolidation, it does change it. Workers can make those demands. And you, you can see in the number of cases that workers were acutely aware that these companies were powerful. But it's also the case that these, now these companies can withstand longer strikes that they can replace workers that are very expensive, you know, to find replacement workers, bust them in, to bring them in. They can, you know, garrison their 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 factories, like you saw with Hu Yen, with police trying to force workers back into work. So it's it's not, and they have very they're very influential in the provinces, even if the central government was um, at least suggesting a more sympathetic line to the workers. So it's it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a complicated story, but on balance, it's it it is moving in the right direction because of the changing, I would say, organic composition, I guess, or of of capital. It's moving more towards fixed capital, and which means that the workers there um, have greater disruptive power. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Adam Arvidsson's recent book called Change Makers. Just to, to run through some of the main arguments that, that Adam made in that book is that he identifies this concept of industriousness or modern industriousness, which I think is a, is a Weberian term. And the idea being that in this, uh, as, as we, we arrive at this late phase of post-Fordism, where the fragmentation and breakup of industry gets greater and greater, that there's more and more workers that are just cast out of regular employment into conditions of extreme precariousness. And under those circumstances, it's inevitable that we're going to see more of these kind of small production, which will have very low capital startup, uh, you know, uh, businesses that are set up in garages and things like this. And he sees a proliferation of, of that type of industriousness in the future. So it seems quite a contrast to, to your argument, or is it not... I mean, it's hard to tell it because if you look at Leicester, it's certainly the case that, you know, at least one and a few of their subsidiaries uh, were, you know, using those uh, suppliers. And um, but I think that it's uh, but it is also the case that the, the case in Leicester, the production of garments at that facility was 30 percent less efficient than the production that was being done in, say, Germany, France, the Netherlands. And the reason is because it was a very low technology. Let's take an example of this to, to understand it. Do you think that there'll be small, I mean, this is an extreme example, but do you think there'll be small producers of cars anywhere? Do you think that that's going to happen? Like 
small little producers of cars? No, I don't. But I am mindful of uh, the knowledge content. Uh, and I think Paul Mason in his book on post-capitalism uh, made this point very well, that through the magic of copy and paste, for instance, that one entire aspect of the production process can just be replicated in, in a way that comes to zero cost. So there will be some sectors that will be will, will, will have their uh, major parts of production costs start to move towards zero. My reading of, of these, of the history of industrial production, is that as you get greater investment in labor-saving technology, and I think that the production that was done specifically of, and this goes back to the reason why you have vertical disintegration, is that um, it's for two reasons. It's seasonality and constant um, fashion trends, right? If you look at the sectors I look at, for example, denim, shoes, men's undergarments, those are the least seasonal and those are the least uh, changing from, you know, week to week, right? You know, denim is a constant thing. Men's T-shirts and men's underwear is basically constant for 30, 40 years. And it's not bound down by, like, bound by seasonal concerns. And same with shoes, right? Shoes, you know, essentially you'll have the same shoe being produced in some quality for year after year. So what, you, what that means is that you can, it builds in the ability to standardize those things. Whereas the production that was being produced, and it matters what they were producing at Boohoo, for example, was producing clothes that were constantly changing, men's and women's clothes that were constantly changing. So what it me- meant that it required a greater complex labor process and one that wasn't, hasn't been automated anywhere really in the world. So I'm looking at the most valorized section of a very underdeveloped sector. And the, the areas that they were producing in, and I guarantee you that I don't think there could be a small shoe manufacturer, for example. I don't think there could be a small denim manufacturer or a small shirt manufacturer, whereas 30 years ago there would have been, or they could have been. Now there isn't. And because of that factor, the fact that you, you had um, these sectors, uh, once the, the, the technological investment has occurred, um, it's very hard to move back from that. So once, there, once you found the te- technology to move in like the 1890s from uh, a certain form of producing from start to finish an auto plant, for example, or an uh, automobile, it's very hard to move back from that. Once you've found the, once you've discovered and invested enough in the technology to make shoes more efficiently, especially casual shoes or athletic shoes, it's very, it's almost impossible to move back from that. And it's hard to have producers that are, um, and same with textiles. You had textiles that were sweatshop, sweated textile producers across England. Once you start having the investment in the labor-saving technology in those sectors, you never go back from that. You don't really have textiles that are that underdeveloped. I mean, you might have it in certain contexts that aren't export-oriented and for domestic production in certain places. But by and large, it's very hard to go back from that. And so I think that it's possible that these large producers would outsource to smaller producers. And certainly that's, in the, that's the case with ready-made garments of, let's say, women's clothes or ready-made garments of like, that are often, again, have this issue of seasonality and fashion trends that are ever-changing, that are fast, and they're inoculated from what Harvey would call the technological fix. They remain bound by the spatial fix, um, that they can move around constantly and bring down the cost by moving around. But... I think that that changes once once surpluses are accumulated at the point of production and those surpluses are reinvested 
into forms of labor-saving technology, it fundamentally alters the, the sector, and there's no real going back from that. Now, Ashok, it's uh, interesting that you mentioned automation and how that will create particular situations in the garment industry. And of course, you said that as the producers inevitably specialize and create barriers of entry, they will consolidate to get more negotiating power for the workers. Seems to me, though, that the relative simplicity of the task of making a garment could be equally automated to a high extent. Maybe this only shows how little I know about the actual practice of actually making a garment, but even if speculatively, perhaps we might arrive at a situation where the barriers to entry will become higher due to technologization, but precisely because there will be no workers at all left. I haven't really seen many examples of that happening across the world in other sectors as much. I think that the conditions, because the conditions were so of this, I would argue because of the conditions of, of consolidation, because of this underlying logic in the supply chain, I think there was a recognition by companies like Adidas and Nike, which are the most, again, valorizable in this sector. And also they weren't bogged down by the multi-fiber agreement. So they started having a form of free trade really in the early 90s, whereas garments was not until, garments and textiles wasn't until 2005. So they had a head start here, right? As that happened, um, and you had QUN, you had all these other different, what brands like Adidas and Nike would see as large liabilities in their supply chain. And 60% of the supply chain, or 60% of casual and sports shoes everywhere are owned by Adidas or their subsidiaries or Nike and their subsidiaries. So, and then you have PoUN producing one in five shoes in the world. That is a high risk for companies like Adidas and Nike. So they announced that they were going to produce and in, 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 uh, invest in uh, fully automated or nearly fully automated factories in France, Germany, and Britain. I believe those have fallen through. Um, I think the uh, economic uncertainty meant that they, and it wasn't actually them investing. They were going to, I think, put in seed money and there was going to be a, um, a company that was still going to be the supplier for that. But I think those are still plans that are in the making. But I think that with certain sectors, with certain parts, like, again, garments or uh, denim, and also, if you look at men's undergarments, which is the, uh, the last case I look at in Honduras, it is very automated. Why? Because, again, it's not bogged down by seasonality. It's also vertically integrated, which means like Fruit of the Loom, which is the company I look at, owns their, you know, their second largest uh, private sector supplier, largest private sector supplier in Honduras. They're, most of their supply chain is based there. And they're vertically integrated. And workers there, because of their demands and their strikes and global solidarity, we're able to negotiate 17% increases in wages compared to anyone else producing goods garment in the in the region. And they have a union and they've unionized the entire uh, supply chain. So, you know, it speaks to the fact that, uh, yes, it's possible that all of these firms become fully automated. and But I don't think we're anywhere. I mean, there is a reason why the garment and footwear sector or garment sector is the first to come and the first to go historically in the developmental process. And it's because it's so low technology that potential budding capitalists around the world can open up a shop. It's still based around the sewing machine. 
then let me thank you very much, Ashok. Uh, this was actually really informative. I learned so much how this global system works. Thank you so much for having me. No, thanks, Ashok. That was great. Thank you.